Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to Do We Really Need a President? Part of our series, First Principles Town Hall, Parents Bringing Civics to the Public Square. Please welcome our host, Angela, Vice President of Heritage's Fulner Institute. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you, Catherine. Good afternoon. And on behalf of our President Kay Coles James, thank you for joining us today on Heritage Events Live. Again, I'm Angela Saylor, and we are so delighted to have you today. Today's youth are wondering why America has a president, and it's a good question. In fact, every generation since the American founding has had to answer it. At the dawn of the Republic, Federalists favored the idea of presidency, while anti-Federalists expressed concern about tyranny of the executive. Those leaders, though, reached a compromise that satisfied both. But the debate over the scope and the role of a changing presidency continues. You will hear Heritage Visiting Scholar, Dr. Alan Gelzo, discuss the founders' healthy debate on the role and scope of the presidency. Dr. Alan Gelzo is the Senior Research Scholar in the Council of Humanities and Director of the Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship in the James Madison Program at Princeton University. And as I mentioned before, He's one of our renowned visiting scholars here at the Heritage Foundation for the Fulner Institute's B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies. As an acclaimed scholar of American history, Dr. Gelzel's writings have been recognized as among the most important contributions to scholarly and public understanding of the 19th century of America. For example, his book, Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President, received the 2000 Lincoln Prize as well as the 2000 Book Prize of the Abraham Institute of the Mid-Atlantic. You can look more at his bio and see all of the incredible work that he's contributed to our nation. Joining Dr. Gelzel today will be Sabrina Lilo Ro Rosewell, uh, former student body president at Florida International University and a former Heritage Academy fellow. Dr. Elizabeth Spalding is a senior fellow at Pepperdine University School of Public Policy and vice president for Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. And last but not least, my dear colleague, Dakota Wood, who serves as a senior research fellow for defense programs for the Center for National Defense at the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. Before you get to meet our incredible panelists though, I want to turn it over to Dr. Alan Gelzo. And as he joins, we wanna make sure you remember to engage in the conversation by putting your questions in the question box. Dr. Gelzo, welcome. Thank you so much, Angela. And what a pleasure to be able to participate in this program on the American presidency and why we have a president. And being a history person, I'm going to start off by sketching some background for how we got 
this particular officer of government that we call the President of the United States. As it is, the President of the United States is probably the single most familiar face in the world. Uh, and the irony of that dominance is that very few people at the nation's founding expected that that would ever be the case. The American Revolution was, after all, a revolution against the rule of a single executive at the head of government. Uh, the executive, in the case of the revolution, being the King of England. But Americans had been having difficult times with governmental executives for a lot longer than just the years preceding 1776. Uh, governors of the English colonies, uh, for instance, as far back as the 17th century, had found ruling in America to be a very difficult task. Kings and privy council committees and colonial proprietors might appoint governors for their colonies, but these governors had to cope with colonial councils and legislatures, which paid their salaries and kept them in line. In 1765, after the passage of the Stamp Act, furious New Yorkers attacked the home of New York's acting governor, Cadwallader Colden, burned him in effigy, and burned his favorite coach. Uh, Massachusetts Chief Justice and Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson had his home invaded by a Stamp Act mob who smashed in his doors, axed his furniture, scattered his papers and books, and made off, as it was described, with money, plate, gold rings, etc. When Americans finally rose in general revolt against Great Britain in 1775, they did their very best to wipe out any trace of executive governors. The First Continental Congress designated a president, uh, Peyton Randolph of Virginia in 1774, but the Continental Congress gave him no powers beyond keeping Congress's deliberations in order. John Hancock, might have signed the Declaration of Independence in the boldest hand of all as president of the Congress in 1776, but signing documents was almost all he did. Some states actually abolished the office of governor entirely and tried to rule through a council elected by the legislature. Having thrown off the rule of a king, uh, Americans were not eager to substitute something similar in its place. But the experience of the post-war years demonstrated that too little executive power might be a recipe for anarchy rather than liberty. When the Constitutional Convention assembled in Philadelphia in 1787, one of the leading members of the convention, James Wilson of Pennsylvania, moved in the opening days of deliberations to create a national executive who would possess the executive powers of Congress. This generated first shocked silence and then equally shocked denunciation as Virginia's Edmund Randolph described such an executive as the fetus of monarchy. But Wilson had the hard experience of years of misrule under the Articles of Confederation to stand upon, 
And the question quickly became not whether there should be such a national executive, but how he should be elected, how long his term should run, whether he should be equipped with a veto over Congress, whether he could be recalled from office by impeachment. In the end, the convention agreed that the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America, a president who shall hold his office during the term of four years and who would serve as commander in chief of the armed forces, have the power of pardon. He would also have the power of commission and appointment to office. And above all, take care that the laws be faithfully executed. But this executive, whom they finally settled on calling a president, had no power to levy taxes, nor to regulate commerce, nor even to raise the armed forces that he was otherwise supposed to command. Almost from the first, though, the presidency began to acquire powers that the Constitutional Convention had either left blank or vague. The first Congress under the Constitution authorized the creation of a series of executive offices, what we today would call the cabinet. But it conceded to the first president, George Washington, the power to appoint and dismiss them. The Constitution stipulated that the president was to seek the advice and consent of the Senate on treaties. But Congress, after much angry debate, allowed Washington to issue a neutrality declaration in the ongoing war between France and England, which was, in effect, to place the entire direction of foreign policy in the president's hands. When John Jay concluded a controversial commercial treaty with Great Britain in 1795, Congress demanded to see the documents behind the treaty only to be refused by Washington, citing, for the first time, executive privilege. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, as Washington's successors as president, expanded the executive reach still further. Jefferson, after some uncertainty, authorized the purchase of the Louisiana Territory from Napoleon Bonaparte in 1803. And, like Washington, refused congressional demands for documents, pleading executive privilege. While Adams and Jefferson, as president, trod dangerously on civil liberties as they enforced the Alien and Sedition Acts under Adams and the Embargo Acts under Jefferson. So hesitant as the founders were about presidential power, the structure they created has turned out to be a durable one. The restraints posed on the office have ensured the control of military affairs remains in civilian hands. The impeachment power has not led to any usurpation of the executive branch by either Congress or the judiciary. But in every significant point of dispute over the president's powers, the resolution has almost invariably gone in the executive's favor. Nor is that a new development. As we have seen, it began with the very first president. 
Well, let me stop there. And having set the table, let me invite uh, the members of our panel to join me here. And they will come on screen. There we have Dr. Elizabeth Spaulding. And there we have Sabrina Roselle. And there we have Dakota Wood. And I would like to be able to pose some questions to them that will help further open up and enlighten this whole question. Why do we have a president? How did we get the kind of president that we have today? So I wonder if I could begin with Dr. Spaulding. And let me put this question to you. Uh, Elizabeth, you've written a number of articles on the nature of the presidency. You've taught the subject of the presidency at Pepperdine University and at Hillsdale College. Could you give us some idea, some insight into the relationship between a president's faith and their political decision making? I mean, this is not often something which is put on big display, but from time to time you see this in very dramatic ways. I think obviously of Abraham Lincoln this way. Why, why should Americans pay attention to this, this particular dynamic? What about faith and politics in the lives and decisions of the presidents? Uh, thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, that particular question we could spend hours and hours on, but I would say that one thing that we want to focus on is where we see the presence of faith as well as the absence of faith. And often in the academy and in our culture at large, people only see uh, an absence of faith because that might be where they are coming from. Um, but the, the presence of faith has been almost universal, whatever the faith is, and ongoing in our presidents uh, over time. And, uh, and even some, some rather crusty presidents, like, like uh, all of them have said variations of there are no atheists in foxholes or the Oval Office. And, and more recently, some presidents that you wouldn't think of, like a, a Lyndon Johnson, he's one of the ones that said that. So um, it's very important to note, uh, and, and it's something that hasn't always been given um, enough attention. A few examples that might help with this um, beyond Lincoln, of course, Lincoln gives us many, many examples, and Alan has written on this, uh, but if you think about it in other times of crisis, because that's where you see what these presidents really believe, what they really think, what they will decide. Uh, during World War II, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who is not con often considered a religious man, actually drew on his faith. He drew on, on his Episcopal faith that he had gotten from not only his parents, but also his headmaster at the, uh, at the school he went to, the boarding school he went to. Um, and he really drew on this to not only frame the stakes in World War II, but then to walk with and motivate and, um, and keep the, the war effort going. And if you haven't read it ever, or if, you've, if, you've, it's, if it's been a while since you've read it, his D-Day prayer, which he wrote with his daughter, is well worth looking at. It's short. You can listen to an audio clip of it. And it's, it's, it really makes this point about the intersection of faith and politics and where it works well. And then the Cold War is very um, full of examples of faith and politics. And it's fascinating to think that the bookend presidents of that conflict in many ways, Harry Truman and Ronald Reagan, 
they, uh, they were both men of faith, different denominations, um, but they very much drew on that for their understanding of this major conflict that dominated the 20th century and saw it as a battle between good and evil, um, between communism and liberal democracy, and truly between um, theism and atheism, uh, the atheism on the part of communism. So that's, a, that's an example that just, you can't get away from it even to this day, um, because obviously we have uh, still communist countries left. And then finally, um, an example that's more recent, um, if you think of George W. Bush, you never would have had um, compassionate conservatism in the way that it was framed and pursued if it hadn't reflected in some way, if it hadn't had the input of Bush's own faith, which he was very vocal about. He's one of the presidents that we've had in modern times who's been most, most vocal during his presidency about his faith. But all of it shows the intersection. Elizabeth, are there any moments you can point to in which a particularly important presidential decision was really a product of the environment of a president's faith? Um, I, I'm thinking in this case, and this is a Lincolnian example, that won't surprise you. When Lincoln resolves to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, in September of 1862, he calls his cabinet together and he tells them, I have finally resolved, I'm going to issue this Emancipation Proclamation. We're going to free the Confederacy slaves. It's a dramatic moment. It, it's probably the most important single decision a president has to make in terms of domestic policy in the 19th century. And he explains it to his cabinet in terms of what he called a covenant, a vow he had made with God, that if the Union Army was successful in driving the Confederate Army of Robert E. Lee back across the Potomac River, which they did at the Battle of Antietam just a week uh, before Lincoln has this cabinet meeting, uh, Lincoln said he had made this vow that he was going to send the proclamation after him, and now he was going to fulfill that vow. Now, this astonished the members of his cabinet. They, they were a bunch of hard-bitten politicians. They weren't used to this kind of thing. And one of them actually said, would you mind repeating yourself? <laughs> Did I hear you correctly? And Lincoln said, yeah, yeah, I, I made a vow to my maker that I would issue this proclamation, and now I am going to do it. Are there other moments like that in American history that show a direct influence of a president's faith on decision-making? I think there are multiple examples. Uh, one that comes to mind uh, from, from more recent years for us that do history um, as well as politics is President Ronald Reagan. And after he survived the assassination attempt, he said that he believed that God had spared him to do something even more than he had been doing thus far as president. Um, and then if you think about the relationship that he had already started, but then he really went on to forge with various leaders, including Pope John Paul II, um, to, to wage the, 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 what ended up being a winning um, act in the Cold War. And of course, Reagan couldn't have known that going in, but he said he had faith in God and he then had good policy, but it was very much dramatic. He talked about it. He talked about the divine plan. He would talk about the DP with various um, advisors um, and, and he got that from one of them originally, but then he liked it so much he used it. <laughs> so he definitely comes to mind. 
And then if you think about somebody like um, a Woodrow Wilson going back farther to World War I, he was really convinced, not only because of politics, but out of his Presbyterian faith, that it was, it was destined that we should have a League of Nations. And you can go through his, his statements, both private and public, and, and trace that out. But there are many, many examples like that. Interesting, interesting. Sabrina, you've actually served in an executive capacity. You've been a student body president, at Florida International University. I'm afraid I, ne I never came close to, the closest thing I ever came to that was I was elected president of my junior class in high school. So that, that pretty well exhausts my, um, my executive attractiveness. I just was not a great vote getter. Uh, but you have been, and on top of that, you have actually served as a university trustee for uh, two consecutive years. Uh, in this capacity, you had to do and be responsible for lots of things. For, it was a $20 million budget for enhancing the collegiate experience. Um, you had many experiences hands-on of what executive decision-making was like. Tell us, as you have worked your own way through this, both living it out, but also studying it now as a, as a, as a graduate student, what does the media do? in terms of setting the stage for president's actions. How does, how does a, the media's interpretation of what the president does and says, how does that alter their image? And especially, how does social media today influence the image of the president for people of your generation? Well, thank you for the, uh, the brief introduction. It definitely is exciting to, to be here today. Uh, and to your point about the the media, and and I'll even kind of hint at this in my experience at the the local list of local levels, which is student government. Uh, I think that clickbait is something that has unfortunately really become everything, right? I mean, we have the 24-hour news cycle, which has become very dominant, and we have the proliferation of social media. Now, all these platforms really have caused um, like a massive influx of information that. I think confuses people more than it does provide clarity as to what's going on. What is the president working on? Is he doing a good job? I think that every day we can turn on the news and there's a different type of opinion. And that also depends on, you know, what platform are you watching? What platform are you listening to? Where are you getting all of this information from? And you have this influx of information that's trying to tell you what to think, how to think, and, and really kind of translates into action sometimes we're bombarded constantly with social issues and it almost feels like every week we're, we're, we're focusing on one new issue and then the next week that issue kind of died down and we saw that play out with, for example, Cuba. I mean, I'm, I'm from Miami and Cuba is a very big part of our culture. I'm also Cuban American and this was something that really dominated our local media and our media in general. And now here we are about two and a half to three weeks removed and it's no longer the central theme on the media now we're, we're talking about international affairs that are constantly evolving constantly changing and without getting into too much detail it's just really to kind of provide that example of how we're, we're again we're bombarded with this information and we're unable to make up our own minds because by the time that we've made up our minds on a particular issue there's another issue being presented um, so I think it's very simple to say that, you know, we're, we're accepting some of these things as fact because it almost requires no effort, right, to be in the know. You just turn on the TV, 
you go on Twitter, uh, you, you go on your, your local media outlet, and there's all this information kind of being thrown on you. And I think it, it, it more specific to my generation, it's almost breeding uh, pseudo experts, right? They, they feel the sense of confidence to comment on these issues and this ability to articulate their beliefs across these platforms like social media. And sometimes that takes the form of uh, what we call virtue signaling, right? Instead of taking a, a critical look at policy, you're just taking what you find most attractive on social media, you're regurgitating that information, you're making up your mind, and then that's really what I think has contributed to the sense of divisiveness. Uh, I mean, I can't even go on social media and, and not see something political being discussed. It's these platforms that were once intended to bring people together and to unite people and, and promote small businesses and, and promote different more family-focused, friend-focused messages are now becoming platforms for people to express their political concerns. And that's where they're painting their image. I mean, you can go on your, your social media accounts and you will know who is a Biden supporter, who was a Trump supporter. Um, so I think that, again, it really points back to that proliferation of social media platforms and the use of it across multi-generations um, that has really contributed to this perception and this narrative of the, the presidency. I don't know if this uh, gives any consolation at all, given the, the these radically polarized images uh, that you find in media and social media today. But even in George Washington's day as president, the press savaged him. George Washington, uh, in in what was then the capital, Philadelphia, uh, newspapers uh, depicted George Washington as a sellout to the British, as an agent of the British monarchy. You're thinking, wait a minute, this is this is George Washington they're talking about. So in a sense, people were doing this, the media was trying to create images even in the 1790s, even under the first president. So there is some consolation in knowing that this is not a new thing, but it has taken some dramatic new forms in the way that you describe. Really extraordinary, really extraordinary. Let me turn to Dakota Wood. Dakota, you serve as editor for Heritage's Index of U.S. Military Strength, which is actually the only, am, am I right, it's the only annual assessment available to the public of the status of, of the United States military. Is that, that's the case? It really is, and in fact, it's a, it's a globally uh, unique product. There's nothing else literally on the planet uh, where a country will talk about the status of its military power and so our index tries to convey that about the U.S. military to the taxpayers that pay for it. So we're really proud of it. Uh, fully accessible on the website, heritage.org slash military, and it's fully referenced. So almost 2,000 footnotes. If you're a real academic geek, you can get in there and see where we uh, derive our information from. Oh, I love footnotes. I think footnotes are a work of art. Some people think that's crazy, and maybe it is, but I love them anyway. <laughs> That is an extremely valuable tool. Tell, would you tell us again the, um, the URL for that so if people want to directly right. go to that? Uh, so heritage.org, O-R-G, and then a forward slash military, and that'll take you to a website where all the material, uh, we're just wrapping up updating the eighth edition, which will be released on October 20th. But the current edition and all the previous six editions um, are on there in an archive format and great graphics and simple to read you know, essays, try to make it as accessible as possible. 
uh, to somebody who might be interested in uh, the world as an operating space. You know, how are our allies doing? Uh, competitors, uh, potential enemies like China and Russia, you know, what are they doing and what are their capabilities? And then finally, the U.S. military. You know, does it have the ability to do the things that we expect our military to do? So, you know, talking about why a president, president, commander, chief of the military, he's got to make the case for why we have a military. You know, what might it be used for? And then make that case to Congress. Congress provides the resources. They have to be convinced and they're acting on behalf of the people that pay those tax dollars. And then the president is obligated then to use that in a responsible way and you know, provide a report on results. So a lot of that is opaque. It's all hidden from the American public. And we try to convey this in a way, again, that's very accessible, data-driven, and, uh, and makes a compelling case for the current status and why we think it's uh, currently underfunded. The situation that we're looking at, right, literally looking at on television screens and computer screens today concerning Afghanistan, that raises a lot of questions in people's minds about the responsibility and role of the president of the United States, especially with that designation, that constitutional designation of being commander in chief. How has, how has that role changed? in in very recent times i i would guess you almost want to say in the last week and how has the afghan withdrawal how has that affected how we look at see and understand the president's role as commander-in-chief well world events uh, do two things uh one they reveal the actual status you know the true status of things that that were easy to talk about you know so um you know, a candidate for office can say that he or she will do certain things. Well, when they're actually put into that moment, uh, their actions will reveal the, the truth of that, the reality of that, right? So the, the Afghan situation, as we see now, it reveals the reality of the nature of the world, uh, as opposed to just diplomatic rhetoric or wishful thinking, and it shows what the military can actually do. So the military is an instrument of national power, like uh, you know trade agreements and economic initiatives and cultural exchanges and all the other things we think about countries and how they buy and and what a White House you know, might talk about, right? Uh, so the the military is a particular instrument, and so in very long periods of relative peace and prosperity, you can say that you have lots of capabilities, or you can say that the world is a certain way, or that the Taliban or the Communist Party in Beijing or whomever would respond or react in a certain way to some kind of a diplomatic demarche, right? Uh, and then when the, the true situation occurs, the Taliban takes over the country of Afghanistan. Now you're left uh, almost like a deer in the headlights, right? Um, whether you're a senior leader in Congress or you're the, the president in the White House, what are you gonna do with the reality of that situation? And uh, so periods of peace and prosperity, which, which actually we've had since the end of the Cold War, it's a 30-year story, right, where Warsaw Pact dissolved, NATO is, uh, could reduce its military power, you just didn't have the forces places. We could say that Iran was a bad guy or North Korea, but nobody ever really believed that we would actually go to war. So you decrement spending on defense, you shrink its size, the equipment gets older and all that, and then voila, you have a situation. So uh, it's a long-winded way of saying that there are promises and there are kind of hidden realities. Uh, but when it comes down to it, the tool that you have 
is going to have a certain goodness to it, uh, capable or not capable. But then it's the political policy decision on whether to use that tool and how you use that tool. So uh, for an administration like George W. Bush or Barack Obama or Donald Trump or now Joe Biden, uh, to decide the political decision to get involved in Afghanistan or to stay there for a while or to withdraw, these were policy decisions. And what underlies that policy decision is an assumption of conditions in the world and whether the tools you have, uh, you know, UN dispatches from the Security Council or statements from the White House uh, or military power, how useful are those in a real world setting? So, you know, the topic of this thing was why a president? And it's very hard one to wage war by committee. It never works well. And so in uh, in uh, the uh, uh, Article 2, right, of, of the Constitution, the very first paragraph, right, uh, well, second one, talks about this role of commander in chief. You know, it is given to the president to be the person to whom the nation looks for using the military tool to secure U.S. national interests. And then later on in, in, in Article One, you know, Congress is supposed to provide for these tools, you know, an army and a navy, and now Space Force and Cyber Command and all those sorts of things, right? So when we have a situation like Afghanistan and we have the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and so forth, saying that we can do things or we can't do other things, it should call people to question whether the president of any party or any time really knows the capabilities of this tool and whether we can physically go in and do things that the public would expect their tax dollars would have made possible, if that makes sense. We do an odd thing in our constitution, and that is we divide responsibility. We say that Congress has the authority to declare war and to raise and fund army and army and navy. But then we say that the president is the one who is the commander in chief and is to take charge of that in time of war. Is that division of power between the legislative branch and the executive branch, is that still practical today in an, in an environment of instant decisions? Are, are we looking as we did in uh, the situation in Kabul, are we looking at a process which now moves so fast that it almost makes the idea of congressional action in response to it seems slow and ponderous and antique. Does that create some kind of argument in favor of a unilateral presidential decision? Because we haven't had, but correct me if I'm wrong, but I we haven't had a formal declaration of war in times of conflict since World War II. Right. So, yeah, this reveals the reality of humans in the loop, right? Uh, that you can create bureaucratic structures and you can create sets of rules and authorities and permissions. But if somebody wants to do something, they'll find a way to work around that. You know, if you recall, the Budget Control Act of 2011 was supposed to cap defense spending at certain levels because the federal government couldn't figure out a way to uh, reduce federal spendings maybe you know, a trillion dollars or something along those lines. And so what did Congress do uh, when they saw the reality of the condition of military forces? They created a new spending account that wasn't subject to the limitations uh, of the Budget Control Act, right? They figured out how to do it. The president has always been able to say, well, there's this emergent threat 
my responsibility per the Constitution is to secure or provide for the security of the country. And I can use this tool, this military, to respond to that. And then I'll go to Congress and make sure that they're in agreement with it and continue to fund it. And what Congress does is they always continue to fund. If they control the purse, they could stop that budgetary support, right? Uh, but they don't do that. So in spite of the rhetoric, we find both sides, the legislative branch and the executive branch, complicit in these very long-running sorts of engagements and involvements in foreign countries. So I think that this question about whether we want to invest it in a unitary power, uh, you would either have to cede budgetary uh, responsibilities from Congress to the presidency, no one's going to agree to that, or you would have to give control of the military to Congress, and that would be disastrous. So I think the founding fathers actually did a great job at dividing these responsibilities that allow the reality of uh, being able to respond quickly to an emergent situation, and yet you still have to have the representatives of the people uh, agreeing to continue this through these annual budget allocations. It's messy. The Founding Fathers meant it to be that way, so we would have these sorts of debates, but it seems to be the best of a lot of otherwise bad options. We've had some questions coming in from the audience uh, through our chat, and two of these questions are really aimed at the same target, and that is the use of presidential executive orders. Uh, one of our questioners here asks about the seemingly unlimited power of the president to create law and his desired policy through executive orders without any law having been passed. What are executive, my, my recollection is that Ulysses Grant is actually the first one who issues an executive order, or at least something that's called an executive order. But what is the status? What have executive orders become something which have grown into um, a way of circumventing the normal processes of government? Or are executive orders something that are actually much more routine, uh, much more harmless than we sometimes think they are? They sound impressive. What are we looking at? Because most of us really don't understand what the, the business of executive orders is. And I, I, this is something I throw open to all three uh, of, our, of our panelists. Well, in order to uh, answer this, I think we want to build off of what Dakota was just talking about. Um, you know, we're in a constitutional system, as Alan, you sketched out, rather than a presidential system. And so where we are right now, executive orders and all, is that is that both have to do their jobs better. So the executive has to do his its job better because obviously he has all those people working for him and all those um, um, elements working for him like you were sketching out, Alan. And then also Congress has to do its job better. So Congress has to stop delegating so much to the executive branch. The executive branch has to say no. And then this is where it's very interesting to look at the single person, the single executive, the independent unitary structure of the, of the, the chief executive, the president, the commander in chief. You know, you still need somebody like that. The way that the world is both bigger and, and smaller at the same time, all of the different things that Sabrina was talking to, talking to just on the media but other factors as well. And so it means that that particular individual really has to be somebody who is self-aware, knows himself, knows America, knows America's role in the world, um, a president who appreciates the institution, the office, obviously the constitution, 
and knows that he is or she one in a long line of chief executives. And so that's a president who's going to not only try to be prudent in everything that he's doing, but also seeking wise counsel um, and then knowing I can't do everything. And so I think that's something where if you had both branches really looking at this constitutional system and saying, we're gonna do what we're supposed to do and, and restore that balance, then you would have executive orders only as necessary rather than them becoming this you know, back and forth war. The next president comes in and he undoes the executive orders of the previous president and you don't actually have legislation and you don't actually have the reflection on it and the deliberation about it that you know so many factors, not just media like Sabrina was talking about, but so many factors have contributed to this change that we now have in America. But, but I don't think we're at the point where we should throw out the constitutional system and we have to keep teaching and reminding people that that's what it is. It's not, it's not a, a congressional system and it's not a presidential system, it's a constitutional system. I would add that it is, I'm sorry, you know, it is an illustration of what we're talking about, about the wonderful and maddening dysfunctionality of this constitutional system we have, right? That um, Congress will rule by kind of committee. Exactly, you know, the rule by committee, uh, which means, you know, things hardly ever get done. And so the executive just runs off of these executive orders and they aren't countermanded or sued or challenged or what have you. Uh, in, in Congress. And yet, if you had a completely unitary system, you can see what a supreme executive, like an emperor or king, would actually be able to do, you know, if they just ruled, ruled by decree. And we wouldn't want that either. So what it comes down to is uh, to what Dr. Spalding was talking about, is the character and the competence and the thoughtfulness of the people whom we elect into office. So if you want a beer drinking buddy, you're going to get a beer drinking buddy. You know, if you want somebody who is serious about really understanding the world and the country, uh, what their actions might uh, imply for their successors, uh, how they might be carrying on this, you know, long line of tradition of, of actually a, quite a bit of restraint, which I think George Washington really set the, uh, the standard for on that. Um, you have to give some thought to the people that you elect. And, and I think where Sabrina was coming from, which is very important points, is this um, sense that these senior individuals are accessible, uh, that, that they resonate with me, I can relate to them, and yet not have that pendulum swing so far in the popularity contest that you're not getting competent people into office. So when the chips are down and you have an Afghanistan, a rampant inflation or a border crisis or whatever, do these people whom you liked and played well on social media, you know, why did John F. Kennedy, you know, defeat Richard Nixon, right? You know, it's one played well on TV and the other one didn't, you know? Uh, and so how does social media really shape these perspectives, these perspectives of, a, of a chief executive? And are we actually getting the competence and the seriousness and the maturity of the individuals that can handle national and global affairs. Are, are, we, are we reaching a point though, where between Congress and the president, an unwillingness on the part of Congress to challenge the president, the willingness of the president to move in certain directions, but only being the president constitutionally, where we have in fact created what amounts to a fourth branch of government. And that is, 
a federal or executive bureaucracy that does tend to function according to its own administrative law with its own administrative courts. Has, is, am I describing something which is a matter of real concern? And if so, what do we do about it? You are describing something of grave concern. And the rise of the administrative state is now, you know, 100 years. Um, it's not something that is just recent. So it is something that people, again, need to know about. I think a lot of people don't even understand <laughs> that it's a problem. Uh, so, so first would be telling people about that, educating people about it, and to try to bring together what all of us have been saying. It means that not only is the the pressure, so to speak, on both the president to do his job and to have all of those different qualities and the self-awareness, self-restraint, um, and the Congress to do its job, but also we as citizens have to do our job. And, and so that's something that's very important um, and people forget in today's 24-7 world where they're, they're not slowing down enough to even think about something sometimes, you know, a lot of what we've already been talking about. Um, but, but we are very important in this and uh and that's something that i don't think i don't think in our current culture it's very difficult to say well you have to be responsible and now you have to educate yourself about these candidates and then you have to decide and and then it's incumbent on you as a good citizen to talk about it with your family friends and neighbors i have one last question uh and that's for sabrina uh, sabrina you have been a student body president. So the question I want to ask you is this. When you were student body president at Florida International University, were you a great student body president or were you the greatest student body president? Well, I mean, I would like to say that I was the greatest, um, but to kind of discuss and shed some light on, on what student government was, again, I, I say it is the localist version of politics, but not without impact, specifically in the state of Florida, how it does function is that each student body president also does sit as a voting member on the board of trustees. And within that, there's also a sense of fiduciary responsibility because we're in charge of directing and determining the use of the activity and service fee. At Florida International University, because we have, uh, my apologies, my lights are going off in my office because it's uh, detecting that I haven't moved too much from my desk, but uh, uh, I'll keep going if yes. you guys can see me. Um, the, uh, the, the size of our student body is approximately 56,000 students. Uh, so there's quite a few of the students that I had to represent, and I'm thankful that I was able to be reelected twice. Um, but, but with that position, I mean, it really required a sense of self-awareness, as Dr. Spaulding had hinted at before, uh, that's important for serving as, as a president of sorts. And um, I, I really found a sense of responsibility through that position because it, it allowed me to be aware of the institution. It allowed me to be aware of what we were doing, not just in our service to students, but what is the institution doing on our research side? And I say all of this and I'm expanding on this to say that the role of a presidency, um, it, it's crucial to have that sense of self-awareness of what's going on within those bureaucracies in government. I had a cabinet, right? A cabinet of folks that I would have to appoint that would serve over specific initiatives that we were trying to carry out. And that cabinet, that team was just as critical as me, right? And this, this panel is trying to answer the question of, of, do we need a president? I would think that yes would be the answer, right? We need that representation. We need that captain spearheading and leading that ship. But 
the president is is important. However, his cabinet, the folks who are within these agencies, those are also critical positions. And I think that um, you know, with with the proliferation of news, the 24-hour news cycle, and social media, there's not enough attention on who these people are. There's not enough attention on those those details of what's going on to the average person that's maybe not as engaged as everyone on this panel on a policy perspective. I mean, if you ask someone right now, and in my own hallway right now, if I were to ask, you know, who are our cabinet secretaries? Most people wouldn't be able to answer that. All right, well, who's the deputy secretary? These kinds of questions and understanding who these people are that are really not just determining our policy, but carrying out our policy is a critical thing that I think is uh, not, not focused on as much as it should be. Um, again, I do think I was a, a fantabulous president, um, but I, I think that I was only as good as the people that were around me. Well, I will be happy to vote for that or for you the next time I have a chance to do so. Well, I think that the clock is telling me that we've come to the end of our session, and I think it's been a very enjoyable session. I know I've enjoyed interacting with everyone. So what I would like to do in conclusion now is to turn the screen and the mic back over to Angela Saylor, who will bring our session to a close. And as I do, let me once again thank Dr. Elizabeth Spaulding, Dakota Wood, Sabrina Roselle for their contributions to this discussion today. Angela, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you all. What an incredible discussion. And uh, Dakota, so timely with what's going on in the nation right now. It's just really nice when we are planning something and then we've got current events and we're able to bring it all together. Again, we so appreciate all of you. We appreciate the participants and on behalf of our president, Kay Coles James, please continue to join us for these conversations. And remember your input is extremely important as we continue to look for programming content that will satisfy your curiosity and allow you to help explore and pour into the messages of freedom for our nation. Thanks so much. And we look forward to seeing you next time.